we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group. For more than 20 years, I've been entrusting my personal estate planning and asset protection to the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group, and you should too. Go to jmvlaw.com by July 15th and mention my name and you'll get 50% off your first consultation. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Tommy John. Tommy John Apollo underwear keeps you up to 7 degrees cooler than cotton. With dozens of comfortable innovations, Tommy John will keep you looking and feeling cool all season long. Get 20% off right now at tommyjohn.com gold. It was a very interesting day in the financial markets today. First of all, the stock markets were very strong across the board, and that's in contrast to Monday's trading where you did have some strength in some of the stocks, but you had weakness in the tech sector. Today, the tech stocks were the strongest, but pretty much everything went up. One of the main exceptions was Walmart. Shares tumbled by over 11%, hitting a new 52-week low. Walmart missed on earnings, and they blamed inflation for the miss. But despite that, the market just shrugged it off. In fact, the more speculative names, the ARK Innovation Fund, was up 5% on the day. There was a lot of strength in crypto-related stocks. Coinbase up 14% today. 
MicroStrategy up 12%. No real underlying strength in Bitcoin, though. These stocks just rose with the overall stock market. As I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon, Bitcoin is barely hanging on to the 30,000 level. It's traded above and below it all day. So no real strength there. But we did see strength in those stocks just because I think there was an across-the-board rally in equities. The S&P was up just over 2% on the day. The Dow Jones up 1.34%. Pretty much everything was up. Even most of the gold and silver mining stocks were up today, even though gold was down about 8 bucks, Closed at 1816 per ounce. What was interesting, though, about the day was that the bond market got clobbered. One of the weakest days yet in the bond market. I mean, we've had some pretty bad days. And while this is certainly not the worst day, it was a pretty bad one as far as the movement in yields. We're not quite at new highs, but the market seems poised to push yields to new highs, particularly looking at that 30-year yield. The spreads are widening now, so the yield curve is steepening. You've got 3-spot 162 is the yield on the 30-year, and the 10-year is still below 3% at 2-spot 968, and the 5-year at 2-spot 946. So no inversion at all from the 5 to the 30, and there's some more distance now between the yield on a 30-year treasury and a 10-year treasury, I have been expecting that to widen as the markets come to terms with how bad inflation is going to be and therefore how much more bond investors are going to lose buying a 30-year treasury than they will lose buying a 10-year treasury. But the stock market shrugged off this weakness because oftentimes when we get a really bad day in the bond market like the day we had today, the stock market pays attention particularly this tech stocks, they would normally be the most negatively impacted by a big drop in bonds. And instead, the tech market was up. Look at the U.S. dollar, a very weak day in the dollar today. One of the weakest days I've seen, the dollar index almost down a full percentage point. In fact, what's interesting about the action in the dollar is that the dollar index hit a new high for the move on Friday. We have got above 105 but couldn't hold on to that handle. And we ended up closing down at just above 104 and a half. And then on Monday, the dollar started off stronger. It was positive, but by the end of the day, reversed and then tanked today. And we're almost two full points below that 105 high because we closed at 103.3. So potentially a top in the dollar. That would be very significant, not only for the dollar, but for the gold and silver market. If we are putting in a top in the dollar, then we also are likely putting in a bottom in both gold and silver. And that would be consistent with my view that inflation is going to win the fight with the Fed. In fact, the Fed is going to surrender its fight against inflation as it picks up a new fight against the weakness in the economy, which it still denies exists. In fact, the Fed is still talking about how strong the economy is. And I'm going to get into a interview that I listened to today with Jerome Powell, where he reiterated just how strong he believes the U.S. economy is. Oil prices, too, had an interesting day. Yesterday, 
Oil was up about $3 a barrel, and we continued that today. This morning, the price of oil was above $113 a barrel. It really looked like we might have been breaking out, but then we got some late-day selling in the price of crude. As I'm recording this podcast, we're back down at about $110.35. We actually were about a dollar lower about a half hour ago before I started recording. This is all after the close of the U.S. stock market. So we've had some late day volatility in the oil price. But to me, as I mentioned on the last podcast, the chart looks incredibly strong for oil. I think we are about to break out and challenge the high that we spiked up to which was around $130 a barrel, I think we can easily take that high out and power forward to $140, $150 a barrel before we have the next correction. But any correction that we have is likely going to be a correction in a bull market. But what I am looking for in these markets is any kind of indication that investors are starting to look beyond this inflation fight to the recession fight. In other words, look past the rate hikes that the market is currently pricing in to the rate cuts that are likely to follow because what the Fed is doing is either going to push the economy into recession or it already has succeeded in pushing the economy into recession. It's just that nobody has acknowledged this. And again, I pointed this out on the podcast before, but I've never seen an example of a recession that the Fed forecasts in advance. In fact, even in the Great Recession of 2008, we were at least six months into that recession. And as far as the Federal Reserve was concerned, it was smooth sailing. There was no recession anywhere in sight, even though we were in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Now, this recession could easily be much worse than that one, but it doesn't surprise me that if we're already in it, the Fed still has no clue because it's always looking in the rearview mirror for confirmation of a recession. And it has its own bias as to how strong it thinks the economy is. After all, Ben Bernanke felt the economy was really strong in 2007, 2008. That's one of the reasons that he thought it was impervious to the problems both in subprime And in the housing market, Janet Yellen, who was at the Fed at the time, made the same mistake. She was not worried about the housing market and said that even if she was wrong and housing prices went down, it wouldn't impact the economy because we had such a strong economy that it didn't matter what happened to housing prices. What Janet Yellen didn't understand was what she perceived as strength was in fact a bubble. The economy wasn't strong. It was actually weak. There was weakness that was masquerading as strength because the strength was a function of a housing bubble and that housing bubble was unsustainable and the spending that was powering the economy was associated with artificially low interest rates and home equity extractions and the wealth effect of rising home prices and all of that went away very quickly and so whatever strength the Fed believed existed in the market vanished very quickly and what they were left with was a great recession. Well, Powell and everybody else are making similar mistakes now with respect to the perception of this super strong economy with this red hot labor market. All of that strength 
is a function of the inflation that they created. They acknowledge that there's inflation now, finally, and they want to fight it. But what they don't acknowledge is whatever growth they think the U.S. economy is experiencing is in fact inflation. So we don't have a strong economy. We have a weak economy. We just have an economy with high inflation. And what's driving that high inflation is the spending of printed money, of borrowed money. And when the Fed is looking at the economy and jumping to the conclusion that it's strong, all it's looking at is spending and confusing spending with economic strength without realizing that the spending is a function of inflation and it is revealing the underlying weakness in the economy, especially if the Fed paid more attention to the trade deficits and the budget deficits and saw that the source of this phony strength lied in those huge deficits and those deficits were also a function of the cheap money and artificially low interest rates that the Fed is now threatening to take away under the false assumption that the economy is so strong that it doesn't need that support when in reality the only thing keeping the economy propped up is the very support that the Fed is threatening to remove. It's not enough to just create wealth. It's essential to protect your wealth from unseen lawsuits, creditors and predators, including your own government, seizing your assets because you support the wrong party. Every year, more than 15 million lawsuits are filed in the United States. Many of these lawsuits are frivolous, using lawfare to try and enrich the suing party, knowing you'll likely settle rather than incur huge expense and aggravation. But imagine your hard-earned assets are held in a legal structure that prevents these pesky lawsuits and creditors from gaining access to your assets. Remove the profit from the pursuit and most of the lawsuits will never happen. These days, having a sound and effective integrated estate planning and risk mitigation strategy is essential for affluent investors and business owners to secure their legacies. When total protection is wanted, and believe me, it's always wanted, reach out to Jeffrey Verdon and the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group. They've been helping clients protect and secure their assets for decades. But you must act before claims arise or asset protection won't work. So do not delay. Contact the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group today. Mention my name and get 50% off your initial consultation. When combining integrated estate planning with asset protection, affluent investors and business owners can install effective firewall protections against future what-ifs. In fact, Jeff even set up a trust for me where everything inside the trust is completely free of the estate tax, which means more of my assets go to my heirs and less to the government. To learn more about these and other strategies, contact the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group by July 15th. Just mention my name, Peter Schiff, and you'll get a 50% discount on your initial consultation. That's jmvlaw.com. Now, if you look at some of the economic data that's come out over the last couple of days, the data that came out on Monday is specifically related to what I'm talking about. Look at the Empire State Manufacturing Index for May. Now, the April number was particularly strong at 24.6, and the consensus was for decline to 15. The range of estimates was from 5 to 18.5. The actual number came in at minus 11.6. That was a huge miss and very disappointing. In fact, the index for new orders also tanked it went all the way down to minus 8.8. So to me, this is a pretty powerful sign that there is a lot of weakness 
in this supposed strong U.S. economy. Now, the people who think the U.S. economy is strong, well, they got a little bit more ammunition today when we got the April retail sales numbers. But I take all these numbers with a grain of salt because none of them are adjusted for inflation. So I don't think they mean very much in an environment of very high inflation. So for example, the consensus was for an increase in retail sales of 0.8, and they ended up going up by 0.9. But if none of this is adjusted for inflation, what does it really tell you about sales? Doesn't tell you anything. All it tells you is how much money was spent. Doesn't tell you how much stuff got bought, Because I think what's really going on, it's not that Americans are just buying more stuff. They're just paying more. They're paying more and probably buying less. The net result is a higher sales figure, but they're getting less stuff. And it's especially true if one of the things they're paying a lot more money for is food. Because by the time they're finished buying their food, they don't have a lot of money left over for a lot of the discretionary items that they would otherwise like to buy. So if you're just looking at the overall level of spending, yeah, they might have spent more, but if they spent most of it on food, then they didn't really buy more stuff. They just paid more for the stuff they're buying. Now, if you X out automobiles, spending was up a bit less, 0.6, but that still beat the estimates of 0.4. And if you stripped out food and gasoline, the number was up one full percent. Again, that beat the 0.6% estimates. Interestingly enough, too, there were some pretty big revisions to the prior month from up 0.5 on retail sales to up 1.4, X vehicles from up 1.1 to up 2.1, and X vehicles and gas from up just 0.2 to up 1.2. So those are some of the biggest upward revisions I've really seen in these numbers. But again, I have a feeling that more of that reflects higher prices than bigger volumes. And that's especially true since we know that the Federal Reserve is grossly underestimating inflation, as is the U.S. government, based on their indexes. And so I think you really have to look to other numbers to have a better idea of what's happening with prices. I like the import-export prices because they don't get adjusted. But obviously, all the prices are reflected in retail sales. And so if we're seeing these big increases in retail sales, it stands to reason that most of that, if not all of those increases, are due to rising prices. And in fact, rising prices could be masking an overall decline in sales. But when the markets are looking at these numbers and just jumping to the wrong conclusion that, oh, we've got this strong economy because retail sales are up, they are missing the bigger picture of the fact that they may be up because prices are up and not sales. And of course, in addition to lying about the severity of inflation, the government, of course, is trying to blame whatever inflation they reluctantly admit exists on other factors, in particular Putin. But one of the things that the Biden administration is proposing to supposedly fight inflation is raising taxes on corporations and the rich. In fact, I heard a lot over the last couple of days from the Biden administration about how tax increases on corporations and the rich that are not paying their fair share is somehow part of the solution to the inflation problem, especially if we could use those tax revenues to help offset rising costs that 
middle class or poor people are dealing with. So in other words, let's tax the rich and give that money to the middle class and the poor so they can use it to buy gas and buy food. And supposedly that is going to help reduce inflation. In reality, it's going to make the problem much worse and it shows how little the Biden administration actually understands of inflation or maybe they understand it, but they have no regard for the truth because they have an understanding of politics. And whenever you're talking about solving a problem by taking from the rich and giving to the poor and the middle class, well, that's a winning political combination because you get the votes of the poor and the middle class and you only lose some of the support from the rich. But if you think about the dynamics of what makes prices go up, It's two things. One is the increase in demand that comes from the money printing, but it's also the supply of goods because if the supply of goods is going up, it can offset an increase in the money supply. That's why I talk about the fact that you can have inflation without prices going up. In fact, you can have inflation with prices going down. Consider as example, a situation where the Federal Reserve expands the money supply by 5% in a given year. And so all else being equal, let's say prices would go up by 5%. But let's say the economy is so productive that the supply of goods goes up by 10%. Now, had the money supply stayed the same, that 10% increase in the supply of goods may have led to a 10% reduction in the price of those goods. But because of the introduction of inflation, instead of those goods going down by 10%, they've only gone down by 5%. Now, the government would look at that and say, oh, look, we have 5% deflation. Well, no, there was still 5% inflation in the money supply, but production caused a 10% drop in prices that was offset by inflation. And so prices were still 5% higher than they otherwise would have been absent the creation of that inflation. And so consumers, even though they paid lower prices, they didn't pay prices as low as they would have paid had the Fed not created inflation. They would have got 10% cheaper. Instead, they only got 5% cheaper. There's still a real loss there. But what normally happens is that maybe prices would have gone down by 2% and instead the Federal Reserve creates 5% inflation and so we see prices going up 3% and the government says oh we have 3% inflation no we have 5% inflation because prices should have gone down by 2% instead because of inflation they went up by 3% that is a 5% difference so when Biden is talking about raising taxes on corporations where is that money going to come from because what corporations do with the income that is not paid in tax is they could use those retained earnings to make investments in expanding their capacity. They can invest in plant and equipment. They can invest in research and development. They could do things with that money to help increase the overall supply of goods in the economy. Now, when you raise taxes on corporations, you diminish the availability of that capital out of which they would make those investments. And so what you're going to end up getting is less production of stuff. That's not what you want when you're worried about rising prices and you're looking to offset the effects of inflation with increased production. If you deprive corporations of the resources to fund that increased production, well, then you're not going to be able to offset the inflation. But at the same time, if you take money away from businesses 
who otherwise would have invested it. And then you hand that money, you redistribute it to consumers who are simply going to go out and spend it. You're making a double impact on prices because now you've got more demand in the economy. You've got more spending because you've transferred money that would have been invested by business to consumers who spend it. So not only don't you get more stuff to keep prices down, you have more demand for that stuff to push prices up. So Biden's plan about higher taxes for businesses so that we can have more money for consumers to spend is a recipe for even higher inflation, not lower inflation. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft doxing and phishing scams sign up and provide delete me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there delete me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found where they found it and what they removed delete me isn't just a one-time service delete me is always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet so take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for delete me now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think it's a good thing now that you are getting some business leaders fighting back because the Biden administration is trying to blame inflation on businesses. These greedy corporations are just sticking it to the consumer. They're gouging prices. And now we have some high profile CEOs, including one who's pretty much a Democrat, Jeff Bezos. He had some very harsh words on Twitter for President Biden and the government's culpability in creating inflation. 
in the fact that they're spending too much and borrowing too much and that the Fed is printing too much. Hopefully we'll get more business leaders fighting back and not just accepting the blame, but pointing the blame where it belongs and not only on the Biden administration, but clearly on the Federal Reserve and not only the current Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve as it's been configured going all the way back to Alan Greenspan because creating inflation is not new. It's just dealing with the consequences that's new because in the past, the consequences were asset bubbles and everybody liked that. But now that we finally ended up with inflation coming home to reside permanently in consumer prices, which is where I always said it would end up, now we're dealing with consequences of what the Fed has been doing for a long time. By the way, Elon Musk also very critical again of the Biden administration and all the money printing and talking about the fact that you can't print all this money, spend all this money on stimulus and then somehow be surprised that you have inflation, that prices are going up, that obviously you can't do this because if you could print all this money and spend all this money and it wouldn't impact prices, well, then why not spend more? Why not have a deficit 10 times as big as the one we have now if it doesn't make a difference? And as Musk pointed out, the reason we're not doing that is because then we would be Venezuela. We would destroy the value of the dollar completely if we spent that much money. But the fact is we spent a lot more money, we printed a lot more money, and we're not Venezuela yet. We may be headed in that direction, but obviously there is a bill to be paid for all that deficit spending and we're paying it now in the name of inflation and Elon Musk doesn't like the government blaming the private sector for problems that it creates. And again, I have pointed this out many times on this podcast, consumer prices are not going up as much as producer prices. So that completely destroys the idea that prices are being gouged because margins are under pressure. Businesses have been reluctant to pass on higher costs to their customers. That's hardly gouging. In fact, it's the customers who have been gouging businesses because businesses have been forced through competition to absorb more of the rising costs that are being borne by the end consumer. Now, as I've been saying, ultimately that's going to change and more of these costs are going to be passed on. And that's one of the reasons that I think the CPI is headed higher in the months and years ahead, not lower. But the main reason is going to be the return to an even more aggressive monetary policy as the tightening campaign ultimately leads to another round of even more quantitative easing and rate cuts as the Fed is surprised by the underlying weakness in the economy. And of course, it will look for some type of excuse to blame it on. It's not going to admit that it was weak the entire time. It's going to have to come up with some reason that this super strong economy just happened to fall into this severe recession and somehow it had nothing to do with what the Fed was doing. But the Fed was certainly going to do everything in its power to stimulate that economy and to recreate the conditions for higher employment and economic growth and all that and it's going to ignore inflation although what I think is going to happen initially is as it's clear that the economy is either headed to or already in recession one of the reasons the Fed will initially be able to get away with kind of ignoring inflation and focusing on growth and employment is because the Fed will say that the weakening economy 
means that inflation is going to come down. And I think most of the Keynesians out there in the private sector will jump to the same erroneous conclusion. They'll just assume that if the economy is weakening, if it's in a recession, that the recession will solve the inflation problem. They are not going to recognize that it's stagflation and that, in fact, the weakness in the economy is going to exacerbate the inflation problem, not because it means that there's less production and the supply and demand imbalances get even bigger. Even if demand falls, supply falls even faster. But the policy response, the fiscal and monetary policy response to that recession will fuel the fire that's already burning in inflation. If you can't take the heat, then get out of your old stifling underwear. The only way to play it cool this summer is by wearing Tommy John's. Because when you wear Tommy John's, you're that much cooler. So you can do everything better thanks to breathable, lightweight fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands and with dozens of comfortable innovations. Tommy John's will keep you looking and feeling cooler all season long. From lounging at home to summertime fun. That's why Tommy John's doesn't have customers, they have fanatics. With over 17 million pairs sold, people love their Tommy John's underwear and loungewear. And Tommy John's doesn't just make you feel cooler, you actually are cooler. Stay up to 7 degrees cooler than cotton in Tommy John's Apollo underwear. Plus, there's no risk because you're covered with the Tommy John's best pair you've ever worn or it's free guarantee. My favorite part is the quick release horizontal fly. It's amazing that nobody thought of it sooner. So shop TommyJohns.com gold right now to get 20% off your first order. That's 20% off if you go right now to TommyJohn.com gold. That's TommyJohn.com gold. See their website for details. Now, before I get to talking about Jerome Powell's interview today, I want to talk about a CNBC interview that I listened to yesterday with former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. And he's out there doing the rounds because he's got a new book out there. So he's touring it, trying to promote his book. It's called 21st Century Monetary Policy, The Federal Reserve from the Great Inflation to COVID-19. Now, I haven't read this book, so I don't really know too much about it. I'm sure I can guess a lot knowing Bernanke as I do, not knowing him personally, although I didn't meet him once, but just knowing of him and knowing how he thinks, I'm sure he didn't really accept any responsibility for the great inflation that he is writing about because the great inflation started with his predecessor, Alan Greenspan, and continued under his watch. And then he handed the great inflation baton to Janet Yellen, who in turn gave it to Jerome Powell. His first book, which I also didn't read, was called The Courage to Act. And I remember when he first released that book, I thought that a more appropriate title would have been A Coward's Way Out. And in fact, I used to say that if anybody saw his book in the bookstore, they should take it out of the nonfiction section and move it to the fiction section where I was confident it belonged. So I seriously doubt that he's acknowledging or accepting any of his own culpability in his second book. In fact, maybe he's blaming this great inflation on COVID-19 or Putin or something like that. Now, I did read snippets from a New York Times a review of the book that mentioned that he does raise the possibility of stagflation. And so he's warning about that. I'm not really sure to what extent he says that we're going there for sure 
or to what he attributes the prospects for stagflation. I mean, I think that stagflation is the only possible conclusion to this policy. And in fact, we would be lucky if we just got off with stagflation because I think it's more likely that what we have is an inflationary depression, which would just be stagflation on steroids where we have an even weaker economy and even stronger inflation than what was experienced, let's say, during the 1970s. And in fact, that outcome is actually more likely than that we get something that's not as severe as the 70s, which is crazy because every time anybody references the 1970s, whether it's Ben Bernanke or Jerome Powell or anybody, they always try to point out that what we have now is not nearly as bad as what we had then, even though what we're going to have now is going to be so much worse than what we had then because the people who are making these comparisons really don't understand the underlying situations of the two time periods and therefore their comparisons are worthless because they don't get the significant differences or they dismiss them between the U.S. economy as it exists today and the U.S. economy as it existed back then when it was the world's biggest creditor nation, had huge change surpluses, and had low levels of overall debt. Now, after 40 years of misguided policy that has hollowed out our industrial base and has resulted in this massive debt bubble, in fact, when people always want to talk about the differences between 1980 and today, they often overlook the fact that in 1980, we were near the bottom of a decade-long bear market in stocks. Stocks peaked out in 1966, and they were near the bottom in 1980. The same thing for the bond market. I mean, if you bought stocks and bonds in 1980, you made a killing. Yes, stocks went a little bit lower, bonds went a little bit lower, but you were buying near the lows of stock market and bond market. You were getting high interest rates on your bonds. You were getting a great dividend yield on your stocks. Complete opposite of where we are right now. We're still close to the peak of a massive bubble in the stock market. Valuations are in the stratosphere. Yields are tiny. The same thing with the bond market. So the Federal Reserve did not have to worry about a bond market or a stock market bubble in 1980 when it was jacking rates up. Well, the Fed has huge bubbles in stocks and bonds. In fact, we have a bubble in everything that the Fed has to worry about. In fact, the entire economy is one gigantic bubble, which is why the predicament that we're in now is so much worse than the one that we're in in 1980. The only thing that's more amazing about how much worse it is now is how few people seem to understand that because it's so obvious, including the people who currently chair and used to chair the Federal Reserve. Now, let me get into the Ben Bernanke CNBC interview because one of the big parts of the interview was the fact that Ben Bernanke admitted that the Fed made a mistake, which is a big revelation because from what I can tell, Fed chairmen after they retire are very reluctant to criticize current Fed chairmen. So even if they think the Fed did something wrong, they keep their mouth shut because they don't want to hurt somebody else. It's kind of like a courtesy that once you leave office, you kind of let the new guy do what he wants to do and you don't want to criticize him and you don't want to 
cause people to then second guess their credibility. Because after all, who's to say the current Fed chairman knows any more than a prior Fed chairman? I mean, supposedly they're both just as smart. They were chairman of the Federal Reserve. So if one guy is criticizing the policies of the guy that's there now, well, which one do you believe, right? Because they both had the job. So the idea is just stay quiet and whoever is the current chairperson, whatever he says, that's it. Well, it was interesting that Bernanke said that the Fed made a mistake in waiting too long to raise rates, that the Fed shouldn't have delayed, that it should have raised rates sooner than it did. Now, it also acknowledged that the Federal Reserve itself has admitted that it made a mistake. And so that might be one of the reasons that Bernanke is willing to call them out as well, because if they've already admitted to making a mistake, well, it's nothing new to agree with that admission. And so that might be one reason why he did it. But he also was clear to point out that he's saying that they made a mistake with the benefit of hindsight. And that's something that the Fed didn't have. Well, of course, it doesn't take hindsight. It was pretty obvious to a lot of people that we had an inflation problem long before the Fed started doing anything about it. But at least he had talked about the fact that the Fed made a mistake. He also talked about some other mistakes that he pointed out that the Fed make. One was in overestimating the slack in the labor markets because there was high unemployment as a result of COVID. And so I think Bernanke said that the Fed assumed that it would take longer to get to full employment. And so it had more leeway to continue an expansionary policy and give the unemployment rate time to come back down, that it came down a lot faster than the Fed thought. He also said that the Fed made a mistake in underestimating the problems related to the supply chain. And that was clearly the case when it came to the COVID lockdowns, where it was obvious to me the result was going to be a shortage of stuff. But for some reason, the Federal Reserve completely overlooked supply and all of its focus was on demand, which it knew it could stimulate. It could stimulate demand all at once. The problem is, why would you want to stimulate demand when supply is contracting? You would actually want demand to contract along with supply to maintain price equilibrium. The worst thing that you could possibly do, and I pointed this out in real time, I didn't need the benefit of hindsight, but the worst thing that you can do when supply is going down is encourage additional demand because now you exacerbate the increase in prices and we're dealing with those consequences now. A couple of other points, though, that Bernanke made that I want to comment on. One had to do with politics. He was asked whether or not he felt that the Fed was political. And his answer was, no, no, they're not political at all, which, of course, is wrong. In fact, it's probably an outright lie because no one knows better than Ben Bernanke just how political the Federal Reserve is. Because I have pointed out his Motley Fool interview where in response to being played clips of him talking about how the economy was great, there was nothing to worry about, subprime was contained, there's no recession anywhere in sight. When he was confronted with his own clips and when the Motley Fools asked Ben Bernanke, hey, how do you feel listening to yourself say this stuff, knowing how wrong you were, right? I mean, what do you think about that now? He did not say, yeah, I feel like a complete idiot. I can't believe I got it so wrong. His answer was, well, you know, I couldn't actually state my real opinions back then. I couldn't really say what I thought. So, you know, I didn't really get it wrong. 
I just was saying it wrong. I was basically lying without saying he was lying. And why did he claim that he couldn't speak his mind? Why did he claim he said what he said? He said, I was a member of the Bush administration and I had to tow the Bush party line. And since George Bush was talking about how great the economy was and how there was nothing to worry about as a member of his administration, well, I had to say the same thing. What does he mean, a member of his administration? He was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. That has nothing to do with the Bush administration. But if Bernanke fancied himself a closet member of the Bush administration, clearly he was acting politically. His answers were politically motivated. He wasn't motivated by the truth. He was motivated by the lies that the Bush administration was telling. Well, if the Fed was political under his watch, why would it not be political under Powell's watch? It's probably every much as political, if not more so. In fact, look how political the Federal Reserve was under Janet Yellen when Barack Obama was president. In fact, even Donald Trump called out the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen for how political she was to try to make Biden look good. He was right to criticize Yellen for being political to make Obama look good. He was just wrong for criticizing Powell for not doing the same thing. When Powell started raising rates and started quantitative tightening, he was then beating up on Powell. He was demanding that Powell lower interest rates, go to zero, do more QE. Why? Because he wanted Powell to do for him what Yellen did for Obama, except he didn't recognize the hypocrisy in wanting the current Fed chairman to do exactly what he criticized the prior Fed chairman for doing for his predecessor. And in fact, that was the main reason given for not reappointing Yellen. Yellen could have had a second term under Trump, but no, he didn't want Yellen. He wanted somebody who was supposedly going to do the right thing and be independent. And the minute that person started acting independent, Trump beat the hell out of him and tried to fire him. (laughs) Now, the one thing that Powell got right, and he rarely gets something right, But in this circumstance, I am 100% in agreement. And that was his description of Bitcoin because he was on CNBC and nobody can go on CNBC without being asked about Bitcoin. And of course, if you're not extremely enthusiastic and positive, they're very surprised and they're going to, you know, question like, how can you not love this thing? This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, how can you not like Bitcoin, right? That's the perspective of everybody on CNBC. And so Powell did not give the interviewer, the answer that he wanted, he was very critical of Bitcoin. But more importantly, his criticism was exactly on point. Because, you know, a lot of times there are people who are critical of Bitcoin and they're not criticizing it for the right reason. Now, not that many of them are on CNBC because they don't allow that many Bitcoin critics on CNBC, but they're around. They just don't normally do as good a job in their criticism as Bernanke. I mean, he was perfect in his criticism and he demonstrated a real understanding of what Bitcoin was supposed to be and what Bitcoin ended up being because he said that the original purpose of Bitcoin was to be an alternative to fiat currencies, which was the initial purpose. And he said it failed at that purpose. It is far too volatile and nobody is actually using it as an alternative to a fiat currency not only because of the volatility, 
but because of the expense involved in using it, it's much easier to use the existing fiat currencies than Bitcoin. But he also pointed out that it's not digital gold because once Bitcoin failed as a currency, it was reinvented as digital gold and it failed at that too. And Ben Bernanke pointed out that it's not digital gold because he pointed out that gold has a use case that gold has intrinsic value. Now, he just mentioned one use for gold, and that's filling teeth. But yes, you can fill a tooth with gold. You've got a cavity, you can go to the dentist, and the dentist can take that gold and fill your cavity. That is a use for gold. You can't do anything with your Bitcoin, and Bernanke rightly pointed this difference out. And that is why Bitcoin can never be a store of value because you have no value to store. When I'm storing gold, I am storing fillings. I could use the gold I store today to fill teeth tomorrow, among other things. But I can't do anything with the Bitcoin I have other than sell it to somebody else who can't do anything with it other than sell it to somebody else, which is why it's nothing more than a speculative asset. And that's exactly the way Ben Bernanke described it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He said it is a speculative asset with no intrinsic value and it'll have a market price so long as people believe in it, but one day they may stop believing in it. And he is right. They will stop believing in it. And he is very concerned about how much money investors will ultimately lose who have placed their faith in what is intrinsically worthless. And he's correct. So it's rare that I am in agreement with Ben Bernanke, but on Bitcoin, I'm in 100% agreement And so potentially, this is the exception that proves the rule, right? He's wrong every time except this one time. And being right this one time validates the fact that he's wrong every other time. Now, moving right along from a prior Fed chairman who gets it wrong almost every time to the current Fed chairman who also gets it wrong just about every time, Jerome Powell, he did a Wall Street Journal interview today. And I think the markets were paying attention to what he said, but it didn't derail the rally. In fact, maybe it caused gold because gold did have a volatile day. At one point, it was up 10, 12 bucks early this morning. And so maybe the Fed's tough talk on fighting inflation is what kept the gold market down, but it didn't seem to do anything to lift the dollar. So again, I said it was an interesting day in the market and I'm going to watch very closely the trading patterns to see if there has been some type of change in the perception that the markets have with respect to future Fed policy. But as of today, Powell continues to operate under the pretense that it's all hands on deck, the Fed is ready to fight, and they will do whatever it takes using the tools they have to bring the inflation rate back down to 2% no matter what. Right? They will do everything. Nothing else matters. They are laser focused on this return to 2% inflation. Now, one of the first questions he was asked, which he really didn't answer, had to do with the fact that it doesn't seem that the Fed is treating inflation 
as if it was an emergency. And I talked about this on my last podcast because the last emergency before inflation was COVID-19. And there, the Fed acted decisively. They went from one and a half to zero almost immediately. There's only 12 days between one and a half and zero. They had one 50 basis point rate cut. And then 12 days later, intra-meeting, they went from one to zero in one swoop and they immediately launched massive QE. So when it came to fighting an emergency that required easier money, well, they put the pedal to the metal. But now why are they dragging their feet? Why are they so slow to raise rates back when we have an inflation emergency? So the question to Powell is, hey, why are you not treating this like it's an emergency? Why are you going so slow? And Powell didn't really answer that question. All he did was reiterate the fact that the Fed was resolute in its commitment to bringing inflation back down to 2% and that they had the tools and they had the resolve and that nobody should doubt that commitment. Like doubt that commitment at your own peril because we mean what we say. I mean, this was the Fed just talking tough, again, hoping that it can talk tough and not actually have to act tough. After that evasive answer, the next question had to do with why Powell decided to box the Fed in and commit to these 50 basis point rate hikes that the next two hikes would be 50 basis points. And then Powell kind of backed away from that and said, look, we're not boxed in. I mean, it all depends on the data. So if the data doesn't come in based on our expectations, maybe we'll go less than 50 basis points. But if the data is stronger, and that data means inflation data, that we still have the possibility of doing more. So in other words, He didn't take 75 basis points off the table. And if he did, he just put it right back on the table. He said the reason he said 50 basis points is based on the Fed's current read of the economy and inflation and employment. They're planning to do 50 basis points at the next two meetings. But obviously, if the data doesn't come out as expected, they may alter that plan according to the data. Now, the market didn't seem to react to that, but he did seem to put 75 basis points back on the table, but he also took 50 off because he acknowledged that, hey, we could do less than 50 if the data isn't what we think. But then there was a very good question that I really would have liked a better answer to, but we didn't get one because the interviewer asked Powell, hey, why not just do 100 basis points at the next meeting? I mean, if you're going to do 50 and 50, why not just rip the Band-Aid off and do 100 basis points. Yeah, in fact, why wait till the next meeting? Do 100 basis points right now. In fact, they should have done it at the last meeting. In fact, how about 200 basis points? Once you've admitted that you're way behind the curve, once you've admitted that inflation is much too high and interest rates are too low, the longer you take to get rates to where you think they need to be, the more damage the inflation is going to do. So if the Fed thinks the appropriate rate for interest is 2.5%, well, move it there right now. In fact, when... Bernanke talked about the mistake that the Fed made in reacting too slowly to inflation. He specifically said that the reason he thinks Powell did that and made that mistake was that he didn't want to shock the markets, that he remembered the taper tantrum and how the markets reacted. So even though Powell knew we had an inflation problem, Powell was more concerned about how the markets might react to the Fed's trying to solve that inflation problem early before it got out of hand. And so Powell is doing the same thing again. 
He didn't want to shock the markets in 2021, and that's why he didn't act sooner, and he doesn't want to shock the markets now. That's why he's not bringing interest rates to where they need to be quicker. He's afraid of how that might impact the market. So he's already shown his true colors in that he's not willing to do whatever it takes, that it's not markets be damned full speed ahead on the inflation fight, because if that was the case, rates would already be much higher. But the way Powell answered this question, he said, well, you know, we don't have to front load these rate hikes. We don't have to rip off the Band-Aid because the markets have already done that for us. And he pointed to the yields on long-term treasuries, you know, the 10-year and the 30-year, and how much they've gone up since the Fed started talking about these rate hikes. But that is the market. That is not the Fed. The Fed should be focusing on the short rates over which it has direct control and not hiding behind the fact that, well, the markets have already adjusted long-term rates. Yes, the markets are looking forward to where rates are going to be, but the Fed should already be putting rates there. The market shouldn't just be discounting where rates will be in the future. The market should be dealing with those high rates right now. That is what the Fed doesn't want to do because it still is more concerned about how fighting inflation may impact the stock market than how fighting it too timidly may impact the overall economy in that they're too little too late and the inflation problem they're trying to solve actually gets worse because they're more focused on what the inflation fight does to the markets than what a half-hearted fight does to the economy or to people struggling with soaring consumer prices. Another comment that Powell made, though, is he spoke about how strong the economy was, how hot it was, and that it was the Fed's job to slow it down, to cool it off, so to speak, to kind of give supply and demand a chance to kind of catch up and get back into equilibrium. The reality is the economy is not really strong, and it's not about slowing down the economy. This is this Keynesian myth that inflation comes from economic growth. It doesn't. As I already explained earlier in this podcast, economic growth brings prices down. It can offset the effects of inflation because a growing economy produces more stuff. So you never want to slow down real economic growth, not if your goal is lower prices, because real economic growth results in lower prices. No, what Powell is talking about when he says slow down the economy, slow down growth, he's talking about spending. He wants to slow down spending. That is the problem. It's because people are consuming and not producing. They're spending without working. And where are they getting that money? They're getting it from the government. They're getting it from the Federal Reserve. But Powell can't talk about slowing down the spending without acknowledging the source of the money. It's coming from government. It's coming from credit. It's coming from the Fed's printing press. That's what needs to be slowed down. Powell is just playing up the misperception that exists that inflation is a byproduct of economic growth. And that's why I said earlier, when we really start to see even more clear signs that the economy is faltering or in recession, 
That's why a lot of people will assume, oh, the Fed did its job. It slowed down the economy. It slowed it down too much. That was the mistake. It slowed it more than it needs to. And now we don't have to worry about inflation anymore because we got a slow economy. In fact, Powell keeps reiterating that the economy is so strong that the unemployment rate is so low that it's even okay. It's even desirable if the unemployment rate notches up a couple of points because it's already too low. We you know we have so many spare job openings that you know we can afford to have a somewhat weaker economy to tackle inflation because we're starting from such massive economic strength. In fact, when Powell talked about how strong the economy is, he also talked about how healthy households were, how strong their balance sheets were. And that's why that tighter monetary policy would not be a problem for this strong economy that there was so much household wealth and their balance sheets were in such good shape. But of course, none of this is true. I mean, first of all, look how much wealth was lost recently in the carnage in tech stocks because a lot of investors have some of the stocks that have been beaten up the most. Look at what's happened to mortgage rates. That's going to impact balance sheets. Layoffs are obviously coming as a result of this tech wreck. There's a lot of indications that those balance sheets are about to come under a lot of stress. You know, the Fed is making the same mistake in overestimating the strength of household balance sheets now that it did leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. When Powell was asked what it would take for the Fed to ease up on the inflation fight, maybe go slower, Powell's answer was the Fed would need to see clear and convincing evidence that inflation has turned down. Now, that evidence is not going to be there. But I think what the Fed is going to see is clear and convincing evidence that the economy has slowed down, that it is either on the verge of recession or already in recession. And the Fed will then jump to the erroneous conclusion that that weakness in the economy is the evidence that inflation is going to come down. So inflation is not going to actually have come down, but the Fed will conclude based on the weakening in the economy that weakening inflation is going to follow, even though not only won't inflation follow the economy down, the weakness in the economy is actually going to push inflation up based on what it's going to do to the dollar and based on the impact it's going to have on monetary and fiscal policy that will result in more, not less, inflation. In fact, one interesting admission that I'm surprised the markets did not react to was that Powell admitted that he has no idea what neutral is, that he doesn't know what tight is, that he's not sure, that he's in uncharted territory. In fact, he mentioned that the confluence of events that the U.S. economy has gone through is unprecedented. So he doesn't really have any historical context from which to try to figure out what he's doing. So they're just kind of flying by the seat of their pants and he's trying to figure it out as he goes along. So whenever he talks about a neutral rate or a tight rate, he doesn't even know where neutral is. And he admitted that he may have to raise rates to a level that is much higher than what is currently considered to be neutral. And Powell said that he will do that without hesitation, which I think is BS. I think there will be extreme hesitation in getting real aggressive on rate hikes. In fact, the Fed has already hesitated many, many times. That's why it's acted so slowly in the past. That's why it's continuing to act slowly now. So to pretend that in the future they won't hesitate to act quicker belies the fact that they're currently hesitating right now. So in other words, don't believe what we're doing, believe what we're telling you. Uh Uh-uh. 
I believe what they do, not what they say. Because what they say and what they do are constantly at odds with one another. Now, when Powell was asked to comment on what the Fed got wrong in 2021, Powell again did admit that they made a mistake in waiting too long. But again, he qualified that point by saying that they only could admit this mistake now with the benefit of hindsight. So that given the evidence they had at the time, it wasn't really a mistake because they didn't know what they know now, which of course is nonsense. But what Powell said was that what they got wrong was that initially there was these strong inflation numbers in early 2021, starting in March, and it went for a few months. But then the inflation numbers came down. And so that reinforced their transitive story. And so they thought everything was fine. But then by October, when all of a sudden the big numbers came back, that's when they realized that their story had been invalidated by the facts. And that's when they changed their rhetoric. Yes, they changed their rhetoric, but they didn't change their actions. They knew they were wrong, yet they dragged their feet. And you can't claim that mistake with the benefit of hindsight. Maybe you can claim that by not raising interest rates in March, well, you were wrong because you got fooled by a temporary decline in inflation and you thought that it was over. But if you acknowledge that by October, you recognize that you were wrong in March and that inflation wasn't transitory, now the mistake they made had nothing to do with hindsight. They deliberately decided not to fight inflation because they were too worried about shocking the markets. And so they preferred to go slowly. And in the process, they slipped further and further behind the curve. And now they have a much bigger problem on their hands. And despite their bluffing, they have no ability or intention of actually doing anything about it. When Powell was asked to comment on the fiscal stimulus as to whether or not it was too large, and if too large a stimulus played a role in the inflation problem. And of course, the answer to that is obvious. It did. But Powell, again, chickened out. He didn't want to answer the question. So he hid behind the pretense that he's not allowed to comment on political decisions. He said, look, we don't comment on these type of decisions. These have to be made by elected officials. And it's not the Fed's place to comment on decisions that are made by the government, which is nonsense. It absolutely is the Fed's place to comment because if the Fed's goal is price stability, if the Fed doesn't want inflation, and if the government is pursuing policies that are going to lead to more inflation, it is absolutely the Fed's job, particularly the chairman of the Federal Reserve, to point out mistakes that Congress is making, that the president is making, that are going to create an inflation problem, especially given the degree to which we have so much debt in this country. And if you see Congress running up the deficit, and now you know that that's going to lead to more inflation, and you're going to have to fight it with higher interest rates, and you recognize how vulnerable the economy is to those higher rates, if you see the government going down a destructive fiscal path, and you are the Fed chairman, you're not supposed to turn a blind eye to the problems that you see creating. That's not why you have that job. You have that job to say, hey, you idiots, what are you doing? You're adding fuel to an inflation problem. You need to be cutting government spending right now. Don't you realize that your actions are about to unleash all this inflation? Because now all these politicians 
are complaining about too much inflation, well, wouldn't it have been good if the Federal Reserve warned them earlier on that their policies were going to backfire and lead to inflation? For him to try to say, hey, we don't comment on fiscal policy, we just do monetary policy. You can't do monetary policy in a vacuum. Monetary policy is completely dependent on fiscal policy. If the government wasn't running these massive deficits, then the Fed wouldn't have to monetize them. So these two policies are interrelated. And to say that the Fed can't comment on fiscal policy is nonsense. Just as much to say that Congress or the president can't comment on monetary policy. They can. That doesn't compromise the independence of the Fed. They can still make a comment on what they think, especially when monetary policy is as reckless as the monetary policy we have now. I want as many people in government to speak out against that reckless monetary policy as possible. And when Powell was trying to blame inflation on something, when he talked about the Ukraine situation with Putin, he talked about the lockdowns and now the lockdowns in China and COVID-19, the one thing he didn't talk about was the stimulus, was the deficit spending. That, for some reason, played no role in the inflation problem. Although Powell did admit that while the Fed has no control over supply, it does have some control over demand. And so the Fed was going to try to reduce demand or to try to take the pressure off prices. The reason for all that demand was all the stimulus, all the deficit spending that he refuses to criticize. But of course, to try to claim that we have no control over supply, we just control demand. The reason that there's a shortage of supply is because there's too much demand. You can't overlook that fact. If you just hand out money, of course there's going to be a supply shortage because there's no way to supply the goods without people working to produce them. Incomes have to be a function of productivity, not money printing. If you're earning commensurate with what you're producing, then there's no supply shortage. But if you're just getting money that the Fed creates out of thin air and you're not working to produce goods and services, you're just being handed money, well, then of course there's going to be a supply shortage. But that supply shortage is in fact the fault of the Fed for creating all this demand. But one of the most important admissions of the interview was that a soft landing is certainly not a sure thing because Powell talked about his intention to glide the economy in for a soft landing, but he did admit that it might not be soft, it might be softish. And when he was asked to define softish, he said, well, a bit bumpy. Like sometimes a plane lands and it's not exactly soft, it's bumpy, but it's still a good landing because there's no crash and you make it out of the plane alive. So in other words, we're aiming for a soft landing, but be prepared for a bumpy landing. He's just hoping that the bumpy landing isn't fatal. But as far as I'm concerned, Powell is wrong again. And you shouldn't be bracing for a bumpy landing. You should be bracing for a crash. And not necessarily a crash in the stock market, but a crash in the dollar and a crash in the economy. (music) 